Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding and Quarantine on air with my co-founder from Dallas, Texas. He's in Plano, Texas, Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going well. Thank you so much for asking. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time that you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button. If you hit that subscribe button, it will notify you every single time that I upload a video. We are bringing you guys so much new content. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, make sure you leave a rating review. It goes uh, pretty far for us and we're definitely very appreciative of it. Um, very excited for some new content that's going to be coming up on the podcast. We're really looking to broaden our reach, if you will. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics. Next week, I'm going to be filming with Jeff Johnson. If you could recall, he came on the podcast um, probably between episode... 50 and 100 to talk about the oil industry. He ran a $750 million publicly traded oil company um, and he's still working out there in the field today and running his business. So I thought it'd be interesting with everything going on in the world right now, um, especially when it comes to oil, to bring him back on. And I think he's actually going to start to become more of a regular and we'll just talk about everything that's going on in oil. So really excited for that. Um, Another news that's coming out is we are also going to start having Ryan Reeves from Investing City on the podcast more frequently. I really like the way that Ryan from his tweets is able to break down business models. And I think it'll be a great segment uh, to really just dedicate maybe one podcast per week or one every couple of weeks uh, to really just break down business models and really walk through the process. And I think it's going to bring a lot of value for a lot of people. So super excited for it. I'm also coming up with a few different segments, um, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, nothing will ever change. It'll always be the true OGs, which is myself and Jeff John or Jeff Gannon. See, Jeff, I, I, too many Jeffs going out. You're the G-E-O-F-F, and he's the J-E-F-F, um, right. but super excited for it. So uh, follow along, make sure you subscribe to everything, and we definitely are very happy that you're here. So in today's podcast, Jeff, I think I really want to go over airports and airlines. I put up a video this week talking about airlines in general. Um, obviously, there's so much going on in transportation businesses in general, but the airline industry is constantly in the news every single day. Should the government bail them out? Should they not bail them out? Stock buybacks, is it, you know, it's all good for the executives, but the employees get uh, cut holding the bag. It's just there's so much going on. And I think we should definitely talk about it. Um, I actually was talking to my dad yesterday. And my dad, Jeff knows this, he works with a lot of American Airlines pilots, he's in wealth management. Um, but they actually have a Delta Airlines pilot um, client, Jeff. And he was telling me that they're cutting. I think 3000 pilots or they're like, um, they're cutting their pay or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just him and his wife are both pilots for Delta. And, um, you know, they're going to go from making, I think both of them because they're captains, I think their combined income is $600,000 in California. Um, to like, I don't know, it's going to get like cut, I know, by more than 50%. Uh, so it's just crazy times. And it sounds like they're going to have to start commuting out of New York City instead of out of um, California. So they're going to have like a five-hour commute just to work, which is not uncommon for some pilots. A lot of times, like for example, there's a lot of pilots in Dallas that may be based in Miami. So even if they live in Dallas, they'll just fly to Miami. And then when they're actually on their shift, they'll, um, you know, fly from Miami to wherever. But, you know, at the end of the day, everything's like pretty crazy in the airline industry and airports have gotten cheap. And we spend a lot of time talking about airports on the podcast. 
And we've always said that we've thought that they're good businesses. They're companies that can hold a lot of debt because they're good businesses. Um, they run monopolies in their markets, high cash flows, et cetera. So I thought, why not dedicate a podcast to get, really get your, um, you know, your thoughts on it? So I really want to uh, dive into it. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because your focus compounding daily somebody sent in a question of how do you stress test stocks during coronavirus? And your answer, which I thought was great, and you could get this, uh, I tweeted it out, but you could join the email list at focuscompound.com for free. Uh, you said for stocks and industries like airlines, cruise lines, hotels, and restaurants, you need to judge how much debt they can add because they will all have to add debt. Um, yes. So, you know, that bodes well with the topic today, and we could get into this in a little bit. United Airlines came out with an offering uh, two days ago that they were raising capital. I think they were selling 39 million shares of common stock. Um, Delta had earnings the other day, and they were as terrible as you would imagine. So, I mean, are, is airlines for you, Jeff, just like a 10-foot hurdle? It's just not even worth it? I mean, the way that we invest, right? If you're a turnaround investor or, quote-unquote, a deep uh, a deep value investor where maybe you run more of a diversified portfolio, I would definitely be looking in this area. But the way that we think about investing and the way maybe other listeners think about investing, if they follow an approach similar to ours, would you be even focusing on airlines? No. I think uh, given the prices and stuff, restaurants are a lot more attractive than airlines. Now, that surprises me. Why do you, why do you think that? I mean, I like, look at United Airlines, two times earnings. Delta Airlines, four times earnings. Uh, Spirit Airlines, two times earnings. Hawaiian Holdings, two times earnings. All of these companies are insolvent. So they have to be recapitalized, everyone on that list. So um, I think it's a pretty big problem. And I also don't know how much... They have very high fixed costs. Uh, for instance, you just talked about cutting people's pay and stuff like that. Southwest has talked about that they may need to cut pay for people. They've never laid people off or cut pay for anyone. Um, how reluctant they are to get rid of people is a big problem, whereas other industries will get rid of people. Um, they have way too much capacity in terms of too many parked planes places um, that can be brought back, unfortunately. So there's barriers to exit in the industry. I mean, one thing that's exciting that about... Mean? Okay, so one thing that's exciting from the perspective of like, let's say oil or something like that is the longer oil stays at virtually, you know, at prices that are close to zero or something for people, the more of them will go out of business and will actually not be able to bring production back online eventually. The more um, uh, there'll be uh, less exploration, things like that. So you have less supply in the future than you expected. I don't think it's that easy to take out supply permanently in airlines and stuff. Then in terms of their balance sheets, they're very, very poor compared to like cruise lines. So in terms of recapitalizing them, although there's concern for people about something like cruise lines, cruise lines are, are uh, a lot better situated, some of them like Carnival or something in terms of owning a lot of assets, a lot of tangible assets versus a small amount of debt. Uh, that's not what these airlines do. They don't own a lot of tangible assets. They are very fixed. Uh, they have unions. They have highly paid people that are will be difficult to get rid of, even though they will need to. Um, and I don't expect them to come back to anywhere near the levels uh, that they were at before. I don't think there'll be any need for the passenger levels they were doing before for a very long time. So, I mean, there is, we have more information about how the virus works. And it matches kind of information we expected early on, which is that it's incredibly dangerous in closed spaces and much safer outside. Um, 
And so that's a really big problem. Uh, they're going to do things like, you know, we won't have, we won't put anyone in a middle seat. That's still awfully close to each other. Um, that already reduces your capa- the, the capacity of how much you could carry in the, each plane by a lot. Uh, it's a lot of air travel is very discretionary. There are other ways that you can get around it. I mean, we were planning to take trips and things and didn't take them even when it wasn't banned in turn. I mean, domestic travel isn't banned in the U.S. So I just see it as really big problems for the industry. Uh, the only way that any of them will survive is by being bailed out by governments. And governments might be tempted to take equity stakes, to impose certain rules on them, to do things like that. So I think it's really tough. And I think they're, of all the industries I could think of, they're the one that is most negatively and permanently affected. And I think there will be a reluctance by governments and by the industry and stuff to actually get rid of enough capacity. They don't want to. They don't want to have huge amounts of people fired, get rid of huge amounts of planes permanently, do things like that. Whereas I think those are the kinds of things that probably need to be done. They'll probably be um, more allowed to do that in oil, like there'll be less government intervention and stuff to bail them out. But if you're bailing out a lot of companies like this, if they are bailed out in an attempt to keep them operating at the same levels they were before, that's very, very bad for the industry. What you, the benefit you get from a depression in the industry is that it wipes out a lot of supply. And so you can come back strong from that. If uh, you keep everything on its feet after depression like conditions, and this is a depression in airlines, their traffic dropped by more than anything drops in depressions normally. Um, if you don't take out a lot of that capacity and stuff, if you don't cut your costs by huge amounts, then you're not going to be in a good position coming back for several years. And I don't expect air travel to come bouncing back in a huge way. I mean, they'll come back off of the levels of nothing right now, but I don't know when we'll ever get back to the levels that we saw last year, for instance. Do you think it's different than 9-11 because it's not like the matter of improving security at airports and I guess people just getting comfortable again flying uh, because in this situation it's, well, you could actually, you know, get sick in close proximity of other people. And so people will be more worried about that. Yeah. I was actually on an airplane on the one year anniversary of September 11th and there was some effect. Some people on the plane asked like, why is this plane practically empty? And they said, uh, I was flying into New York. And they said, uh, we weren't sure anyone was going to show up. Uh, apparently, people didn't want to fly on the exact anniversary of September 11th into New York. But uh, there are people on the plane and stuff. And um, it is very inconvenient, the travel things that happened after 9-11. But I don't know how many people were actually concerned about um, danger to themselves and others. Th- this is obviously dangerous to travel on planes. And it's something that's very easy to not do. Um, you know, just being like a full-on contrarian, and this is a little bit off topic. I mean, do you think the odds... I mean, look, plane tickets are so cheap right now, right? I was looking at uh, flights to Chicago from mm-hmm. Dallas, and I think it was 40 bucks or $35 or something it, like that for a yeah. round-trip ticket. And I was thinking, I'm like, hmm, being a contrarian, rolling the dice a little bit and thinking about like risk-reward versus, um, you know, just the odds of actually getting it. It's like, it's got to be pretty de-risked now because who's flying? Nobody, not a lot of people. I think Delta yeah. said that their, uh, you know, their flights were down like 90% or something insane. And they have to be, you know, they've taken precautions to mitigate the virus spreading. And we know more information about the virus. And 
you know, it's just like the odds of actually getting it probably have to be totally de-risked right now. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be concerned about going on a plane or a cruise because I, I could throw a mask on. I could throw gloves on and be like, "Hey, I just paid forty-five bucks for a flight." Now I wouldn't do that because, look, I'm not going to go be around my parents and expose other people. I'm not like that. I'm not making that case. But I was just kind of thinking about it. I was like, "Huh, you know, you think like odds of actually getting it." Now the risk reward probably isn't the best because what's the risk? Well, you get it and have a chance. Maybe at not at my age, I don't have a high chance of dying. But if I spread it to somebody else, like that's not worth a forty-five dollar ticket, obviously. But I was just you know kind of thinking about that. I mean, I'm not concerned about the risk reward. If we could do some of the math on it. it I don't think the risk reward. Yeah, let's for do it. I don't think, think the risk reward. Well, I don't think the risk reward for coronavirus is that concerning. I think your chances of eventually contracting coronavirus are very. Uh, reasonable. You have a decent chance of contracting coronavirus anyway, um, and whether you fly on a plane or not. And uh, uh, I think that the death rate is high compared to other things that you do. But it's, uh, I, I mean, I've assumed from the beginning the death rate is 0.75%. Now, it could be higher than that. But so far, what we've seen with like New York and stuff surveying people, it doesn't seem like it's a lot higher than that. So that was in line with what I expected, you know, when we heard about the first cases and trying to figure out what the information was from them, which means it's vastly underreported how many cases there are. So, I mean, it's meaningful, but when you, I mean, if you're comparing like taking a, a traveling on a plane or a cruise one time or something versus certain behaviors you engage in daily, it's, it's not something that's going to take a lot of years off your life. No. I mean, <laughs> people drive and drink and, and smoke and do all sorts of things on a daily basis that if we did the math on could take more years off the, of their life. Um, so, but I mean, people were concerned about terrorist attacks, which have such a small chance of happening and affect such a small number of people. So I think people's reactions to things may be different. Uh, than what the statistics say. I mean, this is a bigger issue about coronavirus and stuff. I don't expect people to respond to a lot of things in exactly the way you might expect based on like the actual odds of uh, getting the virus and the odds of dying from it. Um, I think that what you'll see is, and I've seen it just by doing things in my daily life and stuff, uh, because of the precautions taken for it, those make a lot of things a lot more unpleasant. And so that's a big deal. I mean, you can open up casinos or something, or you can have restaurants and things. But if you intend to have restaurants in which everyone's wearing a mask, I don't think that's the same experience as what you had before. Yeah, totally. You know, if you if you have to have all casino employees and stuff wearing masks and things, and and um, and having uh, plastic things blocking them off from you and all that sort of stuff, on an ongoing basis, it's a little difficult. It's even difficult for things like if you open Starbucks up and, and uh, lobbies of Starbucks and, you know, spaced out the tables and things. It's not going to create the same atmosphere that there was before. So, and people are aware of that. I mean, some of the industries are, I think, pretty realistic about that. Um, I had mentioned like a, a movie theater company before. I think they're very realistic about what's happening. And there's a reason why they're talking about like reopening in mid-July and things not being back to normal at that point. Because they feel it'll really have an effect on people going out and doing things at a movie theater that they don't have to do that way. And you don't have to travel for the most part. Um, and this 
affects that a lot. I mean, certain airlines, I was looking at Southwest pricing and stuff, and it's clear a long time ago that Southwest gave up on the idea of pricing things low enough to fill up planes and stuff, which is normally what they do. So they're not seeing uh, elasticity of demand. That means that cutting prices is helping to get people on planes. So their planes will be, you know, 5% full or whatever, or, or 5% of what they were doing before. They'll fly fewer planes, so they'll be more than 5% full. But, um, you know, they'll be down 95% or something in terms of traffic, regardless of whether they charge $100 or $40 for a ticket. And that's not normally how they behave. They know that that they have programs in place to cut prices to fill up planes. You know, cruise lines have the same thing. So it's interesting to look at them and see the the problems that they're having, which is that there's no response to that sort of thing. The other thing that's a major problem for industries like this is huge differences in people's behavior because of how long the shutdown lasts. So you're very dependent on if you have a favorite restaurant that you go to, if you go to movies every so often, if you're used to being a frequent flyer or whatever, a certain way of living your life, that gets disrupted in a way that teaches you that there are alternatives to that. And that permanently changes behavior. Now, I think we generally overstate how permanent the changes will be. But when I say permanent, I mean like 2025, not 2020, 2021, things like that. And, um, you know, if you have large portions of the population which doesn't have any immunity to the virus or doesn't have a vaccine, which I assume would be the case for the next couple of years, I don't think you'll see normal behavior. And that's very difficult because airlines that are mostly not full are not profitable airlines. So, and then there's my bigger concern of the thing of, of that there won't be a reduction in, in supply quite as easy you'd expect. So you'd expect, you know, without government intervention and stuff that you have big mergers of airlines and you take out lots of different um, uh, capacity on a more permanent basis and stuff. And I don't know if that'll happen. And so then you have the problem that as you have a recovery, you could have um, supply flowing right back in and you could have low, um, like load factors and things like that. So that's a concern. This isn't like the railroad industry or something. Um, so it's, it's fairly easy for them to bring back on uh, capacity. And that would be worrying and something that they might do. A lot of airlines might do unless there's some, you know, coordinated effort and, you know, technically coordinated efforts are illegal. Um, will their governments remove certain antitrust things and stuff to help airlines work those things out? I don't know. But so far, the plans and things that I've heard haven't been good for shareholders of the companies. They haven't been good for like earning a decent profit. Mm -hmm. no, Especially I, if you come on with more debt and stuff like that, you know? I mean, yeah. that you have more debt to service and things like that. So, I mean, from the things that we've talked about so far, it's either diluting you at low prices or putting on debt. I mean, it's just, it's crazy, Jeff, right? And I mean, we've talked about, um, you know, the government potentially bailing out airlines. And uh, I'm sure you saw it the other day. Our president was saying that they're going to put together a package for oil companies. I mean, at what point, it's like, would you bail out oil companies, these businesses that went into this, you know, having a ton of debt? I mean, you know, like, what's the answer? I don't know the answer. I got some emails from people and uh, I mean, look, I, look, I'll just make an example of this. Right. So Harold Ham, I think that's mm -hmm. his name. I mean, the dude wrote a, 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 I mean, Google it, a divorce check of like $970 million. I mean, should you to, to his wife, his ex-wife, I mean, is mm -hmm. that a guy that you want to bail out when things go bad because they have a ton of debt and you know, now there's just absolutely no demand 
for oil? I mean, what do you do? I mean, you have to let some companies fail. And my, yeah. my, and my fear is, Jeff, is that they will let the small businesses fail, the mom and pops. Well, but they may have no, yeah, they may have no choice with small businesses. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think the restaurants are more interesting. Because even if the government tries at all sorts of levels to bail out all the small businesses and restaurants, it won't work because they don't have enough cash on hand. It's, they, many of them don't have banking relationships that would allow them to get even stimulus check type things to them quickly or loans to them quickly. So they'll just fail and close down and stuff. And so you can't bail out very, very small businesses. You can't bail out one person businesses and things like that. And so, you know, a lot of the restaurant industry is very local and it's one location places and stuff like that. It's not all big concepts. So those will go out of business. Um, they can much more easily get money to big companies and big companies have other ways to access capital. So, I mean, that's what we saw in the great depression. That's a big reason why I think there had been a bias for many, many years for larger cap stocks and stuff is because people who lived through the great depression saw that a surprising number of very big companies did not actually fail. Like corporate bonds for very big companies had a surprisingly good record through the great depression. Whereas uh, small companies, even very successful ones were wiped out because it's very hard for them to get money. And, you know, that's true now. I, that's why I think that like things like restaurants and stuff, it's much easier um, because so much of the industry is very small players for them to get wiped out, which creates a much better situation when there is a recovery a few years down the road or something that you'll have fewer, you know, fewer units, fewer restaurants around. And if you have fewer restaurants around, that makes a much better situation for having high utilization of the assets that are left, which is often what, you know, you want to see in an industry you're looking for recovery. You don't want to hear about an industry that has a big drop off in demand and hasn't cut supply enough. I mean, that's why oil prices dropped like they did. It's because oil did not, oil supply for weird reasons um, wasn't declining at all. In fact, uh, there was an effort to increase it for a little bit there. So that was a bizarre behavior. And that's something that you won't see in like, like the example being the restaurants. So I think industries that aren't dominated by a few very big players are more attractive because the small players will be wiped out. And if you're buying into the remaining businesses, that's what you need to have happen. When you have huge demand destruction, you need to have a huge supply destruction. And that's why I think that something like restaurants is a much more interesting space than something like airlines because the airlines are dominated at least, you know, basically all around the world, but um, by a small number of players and the, who will get bailed out and will not just bailed out, but even when they don't want to keep as much supply may be encouraged by governments and stuff to do it. Like governments may say, we want you to keep people on your payroll. We want you to do all this stuff that they would really better be better off not doing. Do you like um, restaurants like Chili's and Cheesecake and BJ's or are you talking more so like QSRs, like Starbucks, Taco Bell, uh, McDonald's and those type of businesses? I'm full service restaurants at the, um, at the right price, I think could be very attractive. I mean, they will have problems for a little while, for a few years, but there's no reason why, you know, five years from now, uh, the earning power of restaurants isn't, uh, I shouldn't say the earning power, but there's no reason five years from now while, why there'd be any difference in behavior in terms of people going out to restaurants. I would expect in five years, it'll be exactly the same, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah, um, but, and so it would be good for those companies if huge numbers of their local competitors are wiped out. Um, that's what would benefit them the most. I mean, that benefits them in lots of ways. It eliminates supply from those things so that it becomes tight 
in terms of um, you have very full restaurants when people do want to come back to things. It also has great things for you for labor because all the people who've been working in restaurants now are readily available for you to hire at reasonable prices. You know, there's now tons of people who work as cooks and things who are, at, who are don't have jobs. And there's tons of people who ran their own restaurant before and are out of business. Maybe they can be the GM of your individual location. You know, there, there's lots of things that are attractive about that. If an industry has a big wipeout of smaller players in it, uh, if an industry doesn't, that's more concerning to me. And that's where I'd be worried about airlines. Um, I'm, I am thinking that there won't be enough done to, to take out. I don't think you'll see a lot of airlines actually fail compared to what you would expect. Whereas I think you'll see huge numbers of restaurants not reopen or reopen briefly and then be out of business sometime this year or next year. What about airports? So airports are interesting. They clearly won't be allowed to shut down. I mean, they clearly permanently shut down. Um, they have big risk of government involvement. They're heavily, heavily indebted, but they have an asset that's very attractive. And um, it depends on what the shareholder base is and how much the government can be involved with things. Several of these airports have large shareholders, which are regional governments or national governments or something. And those may want them to do things to have high amounts of traffic, like having low fees to charge the airlines. Um, so that they keep moving lots of traffic through their airports as opposed to like raising prices all the time, you know, raising prices a little bit on the fees to land, take off and stuff. Um, so I, I would want one that I think has debt spaced out nicely and can access uh, debt markets and that probably has a little bit more um, business friendly shareholder base. Um, I'd be a little bit more concerned about ones where you see large uh, ownership by like regional governments and things like that. Okay. So like which one? So I was talking about uh, PAC, Grupo Aero, I can't pronounce it, Aero Portario del Pacifico. Um, and actually, and then we've talked about Sydney Airport and I linked to your write-up on the company, which I'll mm -hmm. also put in the show notes. Uh, I made that post free for anybody that wants to read it. It's a great post. Um, and somebody actually recommended taking a look at... Uh, Aeroports de Paris, so the uh, public uh, airport in Paris. Have you ever looked at that company? No, I have not. Um, so, so you'd be very concerned, though, about like the debt, right? When we talked about Sydney Airport, they're a very levered company, but you've right. always said that you like the way that they structured that debt because it's much more, it's spread out. Uh, I don't want to say prudently, but I guess as prudent as you can be when you're seven times EBITDA, right? Yeah, it's well spaced out. Sydney Airport's done a good job of spacing out as best as possible. I wouldn't mind longer than what they've done, but yeah, they've spaced out very, very well. I forget the exact average, uh, if it's five or six years from now, you know, a weighted average of it. They've borrowed in um, different countries around the world and uh, and they've borrowed in currency that matches off against the currency that they're earning in. So they've done definitely the best you can to avoid sorts of those sorts of risks. And they've obviously gone to capital markets and had no problem borrowing in the past. So they're well able to um, borrow there. Uh, however... I'm not sure how cheap these things are. So what you have there is a PE ratio and the 52-week high and low on the stock. The stock now for some of these companies is not a huge portion, the stock at market value, is not a huge portion of the overall capitalization. There's debt. And so the actual reduction in the value of the um, company may not be as big as it looks from there. And that's another reason why yeah. something like restaurants are interesting because many of them don't have debt. Now they have leases. 
but they don't have debt so that um, as long as they can take care of their lease situation, you've had a huge decrease in enterprise value. Like if you look here, we're looking at, um, okay, so that's six and a half times EBITDA for that one there. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, that's an EBITDA that won't be achieved for a while. I mean, th these, so many of these airports get income from a few different sources. The biggest one usually, usually being fees charged either on a per passenger basis or something like the max takeoff weight or something of a plane. So basically each time a plane lands and takes off, they may make money or they may make money uh, based on the number of passengers that that plane uh, brings in. So those are one of the things they do. They also can make money off parking and things like that. And then they make money off the rents from like duty-free shops and restaurants and all those things that you see in an airport. Um, all of those are very challenged sources of, of income right now. Sure. I don't know that you'd expect those places to pay you rent. I don't know that you'd be collecting a lot of fees from airlines and airlines are going to need or they're going to want lots of concessions from you in the future in terms of cutting uh, costs for them uh, to help them out so that they don't go out of business. They don't lose their slots and things like that. So, um, you know, that it, it, that's cheap, you know, six and a half times EBITDA for an airport is cheap, but that's an EBITDA that, you know, you won't achieve for a few years. Mm -hmm. So you decide how long you think that is, but you take your discount rate and you say, okay, I expect to make 10% a year in the stock market or whatever you think. Well, if you don't get back to the EBITDA that you're buying in on, it's effectively means that you have to have, you have to pay a price that justifies that out however many years. So if we take one year, uh, you, you know, then you're giving up 10% by being in this till it reaches that EBITDA. If it's two years, you know, 21%, if it's three years, more like 33%. And so, because you need that 10% compounded. So you have to consider that an EV to EBITDA of six and a half or something, you need, that's not really an EV to EBITDA of six and a half because you're not going to get back to that number for several years, presumably. I don't know, but I would expect that you won't hit that EBITDA number for several years. So that is a concern that you have to weigh. Um, and it's true for a lot of companies. I mean, to some extent, it's true for all companies that you have to be careful if you're using a P from last year or something. That P is also probably the same as like a two or three years out PE. You know, and if you have a business normally that you buy into that's growing pretty well, the PE in a few years is usually a lot lower. I mean, people are used to buying a company at 15 times earnings that will be, that's 12 times earnings or less three years out. You know, mm -hmm. now you're buying a company, if you're buying it at 12 times PE, you're also buying at 12 times three years out earnings. You, you know, there's no growth basically. So you can think of it as having no growth or you can think of it that you're paying a price that's kind of high versus a few years out. What are some restaurant stocks you think people should take a look at? Well, there are a lot of them, but uh, we've talked about Cheesecake Factory many times. A lot of these stocks have recovered, though, to a point that I don't know how attractive they are. Um, I think the same as with all of these other businesses, they have to be recapitalized, though. So you have to get through this initial survival period. And it would depend to me on what behavior they're taking. So Cheesecake, I believe, did recapitalize, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Cheesecake did a recapitalization, which I think is a good idea. I was talking to someone about this. And, and the most important thing, obviously, is if you're one of the bigger players in your industry, you, governments and things may bail you out in some way. Landlords may bail you out in some way. But some companies will fail. So, uh, you know, to use that metaphor that people like all the time about, you know, 
that you can't outrun a bear. You just have to outrun the person who's with you. Um, I don't, not every company in an industry will be allowed to fail, but it is very important that you be one of the best positioned in an industry because some will probably fail. You know, um, the, in 2008, uh, Bear Stearns was allowed to fail. And then they tried to have Lehman not fail. And then after that, they were sure nothing should fail. Um, you have the same sort of situation in various industries. The weakest players might fail, but the ones who will last the longest are almost guaranteed to have some sort of bailout that's pretty favorable um, because you won't let everyone fail. And once you see how bad things are, then you'll, you will uh, have governments not wanting to let others fail. So I think that I would be most interested in the companies that are getting as much cash on hand as possible, that are issuing stock, raising debt, doing all those things really early on, even at very high rates, uh, and not thinking that there's a way out for them that they can muddle through this and stuff. So I'd be very interested in like who's running the company and how aggressively are they raising financing even at very bad rates for them, you know? Yeah. When you have I mean, the way Cheesecake was recapitalizing, it was a very good deal for the firm. I think uh, it, it was, uh, what they do? They, it's a convertible preferred... Mm-hmm. And I remember, re- I don't remember it right now, but I know it was, I remember reading it and being like, wow, that's, that's a pretty good deal for the firm. I can find my tweet on it. Okay. Um, but I thought it was pretty good. It's pretty massive dilution. I, I didn't go over looking through it, but uh, when I was figuring out the math on how big the dilution is versus at the price that they were listing and everything, it's um, pretty big. They also get a board seat or two. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I like that because uh, honestly, I would be, I know that shareholders hate this, uh, having massive dilution like that or seeing, you know, uh, Carnival and the cruise lines issue a lot of stock and convertible stuff and on top of that borrow at a 12% rate. But I think that it's a very good idea to raise as much capital as possible as early on as possible mm-hmm. um, to have as much cash on hand. And I, I'm... <sighs> Some of them, I think, should have been doing more and earlier. Yeah, so that's an aggregate purchase price of $200 million And um, so long. Let me find it. Here we go. Oh, they also get paid a commitment fee of 1%. Yeah. Commasoc at a conversion price equal to $22.23 per share. Okay. I, which I think it stocks above that now, I think. Um that's pretty attractive because based on like the old time sales that they had, we yeah. can do the math on what the EV to sales would be on that. That's attractive. Yeah. That's maybe a 50% more than 50% discount probably to what a good price to buy in that would be in normal times. Yeah. Maybe, maybe two thirds discount or something. So what, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The percent uh, purchase price. Yeah. And they're entitled to liquidation preference at the rate of 9.5% per year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, but it's paid in kind by the company. Which means so what? They don't have to use cash to pay it. So right. yeah, it can they, they can they can use more. They can well, they can use more of the same security, probably. I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, so I mean, we have to read this whole thing, but I assume that that means that they could pay them a compounding nine point five percent in the security that is issuing them more and more preferred stock, rather than um, giving them uh, the cash which is very good. That's for the company. That's very, very helpful. Um, but the company, the company can also redeem it at only 120% of the liquidation preference. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll five, start to five see, years. 
I'm sure we'll start yeah. to see more deals. Were you surprised to see that? I mean, Munger's daily journal portfolio came out. He didn't do anything. Yeah. He hasn't made any changes. Um, Buffett, you know, it sounds like, I mean, we haven't heard anything in the news, but also Charlie Munger did that Wall Street Journal interview and he said the phone is not ringing off the hook. <laughs> they, they haven't, you know, done a lot. And when I tweeted that, I thought it was interesting because somebody said they didn't miss their chance to buy and they know it. Um, so I thought that was interesting. But well, are you surprised that they haven't done anything? No, I'm not surprised. I mean, and I don't think I'm surprised that people haven't been calling them. I think people should be calling them, but I'm not surprised. I think it's very, I mean, we talked a little bit about this with like what Buffett is buying prices in uh, stocks, uh, in pieces of businesses that you can buy often drop a lot faster than prices in entire businesses um, that you could negotiate purchases for. I can understand that people wouldn't want to negotiate a sale of their company entirely to them now, but the idea that you would need to raise a lot of capital might be a smart idea. Um, because we have this moment now, depending on what happens in the future, where you've been able to have large bond issuances and things like that. So people know how bad things are, but you have a window now, you've had a window now for like a month or something, where you've been able to access capital, whereas in the initial panic, you didn't. If you end up in a panic situation again, or in a greatly declining stock market and stuff, it may become very difficult to raise capital. And in fact, it's... The way that psychology works, I think, is for things like restaurants and stuff, probably your moment to raise capital is while you're shut down or about to reopen and when it's not clear yet to people what the situation is once you've opened. See, once you start reporting numbers for a while, once you've reopened states and things, uh, that would be the point where it could be more concerning to uh, you know what happens in terms of being able to raise money. I mean, you don't want a situation where you didn't raise enough money. And there's a major uh, resurgence in coronavirus cases or whatever in, in you know six months from now, and you have you know found it really hard to uh, raise money under those circumstances because the problem now is people know what happens. So you had a moment before because people may have seen it as a big buying opportunity because they thought well maybe this is a temporary thing maybe this is for airlines for instance some people may have thought maybe this is like September 11th. Now, some airlines quickly came out and said this is much worse than September 11th, but people kept comparing it to September 11th. But now uh, investors know how big the declines are for restaurants, for, um, for airlines and things like that. And so if something were to happen again later, the reaction could be much worse. The difficulty of raising money could be much, much harder than it is in a moment where you have... Um, some people seeing a good opportunity to buy and stuff. And so you really want to take advantage of that. And that's, you know, gaming things to a certain extent, but what you always want to do is you want to borrow money when it's available and not borrow money uh, necessarily when you need it. You shouldn't be borrowing money when you need it. Cause if, if an Terrible industry, rates, right? <laughs> if an, yeah, if an industry or it's just not there, I mean, it's very possible it just won't be there in the future. I do worry about that for restaurants and stuff that, you know, carnival borrowed at 12% and stuff. I don't see that as a bad rate for them to borrow at. We'll see what happens. And they didn't have to borrow for a very long uh, bond. It's not like they issued a 30-year bond at 12%, which would be much more difficult if you couldn't call it. You know, They borrowed for a relatively short period of time at 12%. It would be potentially more concerning you know, when you have those bonds out or whatever, and there's another outbreak or another shutdown or whatever, 
And the reaction is those bonds dropping a lot in price and stuff, you know, because you'll have these securities out there. And so I think barring at rates that are would surprise you and horrify you compared to where you were before and issuing stock when your stock's down 50% or something is a good way to have that money on hand to survive. Um, because you have to be very, very worried about what will happen in the future in, the, in, in these industries in particular, not so much generally, but in any of these things that are related to the going out thing. So movie theaters, restaurants, theme parks, cruise lines, airlines, hotels, all of them really would want to raise a lot of money. And there has been a lot of money raised. In some ways, I'm a little bit surprised that some haven't raised more to have cash on hand. But, you know, there's already been a lot of issuance generally in the economy. Uh, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I guess that's a good segue into the email that somebody sent you. Because we talked a lot about stress testing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and somebody emailed you, well, how do you do that during coronavirus? And you basically boil it down to companies' ability to raise debt and you said you would think about three things. How much debt could you raise based on your long-term past average earning power? How willing is management to take on debt, issue stock, et cetera, at any cost? And how quickly would they do that? So I think uh, what I kind of laid out there, and these could be different numbers, people who know where bonds are trading at now at different grades of bonds and stuff might have a better idea. But I would say in general, if... You know, if there's not in normal sorts of times or situations for your company, um, it should be fairly possible to borrow at uh, net debt levels of two to three times EBITDA, as long as that also is about eight to 10 times uh, coverage uh, of your interest payments. So if you can cover your, if you, if the amount that you have uh, to pay in interest is less than, um, say 12 and a half percent or something of the amount that you could in a normal average year pay, then you may be able to get people interested in your bonds. And, and then overall, you would be hard, I think, to borrow more than about two or three times your normal EBIT on the past. So if we look at some companies in Quick FS, we can look at what I mean by this. All right, I have Cheesecake Factory up. Okay. So what do you want to look at on it? So my point was just in terms of uh, what you could cover there. Are you logged in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we just go to like income statement or something like that, I think we could have, yep. or that might work or let's see, let's try. Um, actually, can you go to key ratios? That'd be easier for me to probably calculate this. Okay. Yeah. So if we look their long-term average EBITDA margin, right. That we see there was around 11, 12% there and then it's dropped down more recently. Um, and if we just compare that, if we go back to um, the overview, we can see what they were doing in revenue before, right? So yeah. that's about, uh, like, say, 180 million in, in EBITDA, let's say, roughly, uh, is like a normal level of EBITDA for them uh, on average. And there's a lot of different ways you could calculate that, but that's one of them. So if they had $180 million in EBITDA as like normal before going into this, then what I was saying is it might be possible to borrow 360 or um, 540 million in EBITDA. And then the other question is how much of your uh, interest can you pay? And that's another issue because if it's very expensive, the uh, borrowing that you do, if you borrow at junk bond type rates like they've had to, then, you know, your coverage is not going to be very good. But this is particular to uh, an industry. So cheesecake in the uh, restaurant industry, that's a little more difficult to do this for because clearly people are treating cheesecake and carnival and things like that 
as being um, junk, basically, despite the fact that they had historically had uh, numbers that would be uh, very good to cover this sort of debt. So it's more in industries that are like I gave an example, I think, in one email about Movado or something like that, which is a little bit easier to see how it would survive. It already has cash on hand and, you know, sells watches and stuff, uh, how it would get through this initial part. So it's not in one of those sorts of industries. But then how much could it borrow? And the answer is it could probably borrow a fair amount. Um, I think you have to go in on the assumption these things are going to be recapitalized. And for the most part, Cheesecake already has been recapitalized. But for the most part, I would be against buying into any stock that hasn't already shown that it's willing to recapitalize um, because I would want to have basically two things. You want the major decision makers to have you know, um, incentives and things like that, like large stock ownership and stuff like that, that align their interests with yours. But you also beyond that need them to be realistic. Like some people were talking to me about, isn't it a good sign that there's insider buying in this stock or that stock? It could be a good sign, but it could also be, a, unfortunately, a very bad sign because it can be a sign of overconfidence. And so if they're buying a stock you don't think they should be buying, uh, insiders, then that would really worry you because they're going to be the ones making the decisions about how to recapitalize things and when. And if they do that, that might hint to you that they're not going to issue a lot of stock and that they're going to be very slow to do that. And if they won't issue a lot of stock or take on a lot of debt, that's a problem. Now, of course, I would rather as a shareholder of one of the companies we're in or something for them to raise a lot of debt rather than to issue a lot of stock. Because um, you don't want to get it diluted. Right. And I, I think that it's possible to get, I think a lot of these companies could, a lot of these good companies could handle large amounts of debt. Um, I think that's possible. And the cost of the debt is presumably a lot lower. Even if you take an example like Carnival. So Carnival, that was a pretty short-term borrowing and stuff with the straight debt that they did. I think it was supposedly around 12% or something, right? So 12%, Carnival is not a major taxpayer. So that 12% is almost 12% before and after tax. So it's not very helpful that way. But even if you put that aside, if you look at where Carnival was trading, maybe we could type in CCL so we can get an idea on that. Yep, sure. Um, so if we look at where they were, uh, the stock was around $8 or so when they did the, the common stock issuance. Um, and they did borrowing at around that price. So if you look historically at what the stock was earning, let's just look at some, th some things like that, like earnings per share, right? So their earnings per share peak happened back um, at about $4.44, something like that. Yeah. And so you had several years there where they were, um, you know, in that range. So let's say their worst years at the bottom of that were like, you know, still better than a dollar. And their best were not as good as like, you know, $5 or something. So let's say four, one to $4. So let's say they're earning one to $4 a share over the last 10 years, right? And that's what they could be earning again. Well, one to $4 a share <laughs> earned on an $8 stock price, right? Is somewhere between 12 and a half and 50% uh, your cost of capital there without any growth and stuff. That's just from your earnings yield. So if you borrow at 12%, um, that's more attractive than borrowing at some price, which could be anywhere from 12 to 50% by issuing stock, because that's how much your stock would be expected to go up over time. We've already seen the stock did go up from eight to like 11 and a half or more. So it has gone up 40% or something. So you get an idea that it's just better from the cost of capital perspective to issue bonds at 12% than it is to sell stock, which presumably would compound at, you know, 20, 30, whatever percent. Uh, it's already gone up 40% in a you know, matter of weeks or a month or whatever. Um, so you, don't, you, you do want to use a lot of expensive, uh, you know, borrow at a lot of expensive rates even 
because you have that advantage. And remember, for most companies, they are they have a tax benefit um, that's going to reduce it by about you know. So if they borrowed at ten percent, it would really be like borrowing at eight percent or something for them, not for Carnival, but for them. So um, preferred and stuff is a little more complicated. But just saying debt, if someone's borrowing at ten percent, that sounds very frightening. But that's really eight percent after tax, and if you're a distressed stock, your stock is worth a lot more. Uh, than 8% after taxes, how much you'd expect it to go up. So you'd still be a lot better off borrowing than you would be issuing uh, equity. Now, for a more expensive stock, it can make a lot of sense to issue equity. But these companies are generally pretty cheap stocks. Um, you know, that's why they're, I'm not seeing any stocks that aren't very cheap, uh, borrowing a lot of money, really. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you'd be really focused on their ability to raise debt, their thoughts about raising debt, like if they're willing going to um and then like compare that to their past historical earnings power yeah i would buy the stock based on their past historical earnings power but i would want to have a i would focus mainly on management um the people making the cap allocation decisions whoever that is and i would really want to see indications from them just everything i learned about them and their actions here that they are as pessimistic and as conservative um, and as active, not likely to be frozen, you know, Munger was talking about that and stuff. You don't want a management that's frozen. You want a management that is willing to issue a lot of stock, borrow a lot of debt, do everything necessary to have a huge cash pile quickly. And I would mm-hmm. much rather see that. I would be much happier with a management that's willing to dilute me a lot now to make sure that they're in the right position down the road. And I'd be most worried about management that's very slow. So I don't want to see a company that's slow to remove guidance, slow to um, say things are going to be bad overly optimistic about how things are quickly things will open up and we'll get back to things and stuff like that. I would really want to only be betting on the management that seems the most um, uh, active in an extremely pessimistic way in survival mode. That's the company that I would want to buy into. I would be very cautious about companies that look good, but the management, it doesn't seem uh, aggressive enough in raising cash and things like that. Because the most important thing with any stock you'll be going into here is the um, survival of it, is that the stock survives. Because like I said, if you can see Carnival earned between one and four and a half, you know, $1.30 and, and four forty four. So let's say a dollar to $4. They earned that consistently over the last 10 years. So well, before they did this issuance, it was at like $8. You can afford to get severely diluted. If, you're, if 50% of the stock gets diluted, you're still having a stock, which on average is selling at between, you know, 16 and and four times earnings, right? You know, after the dilution. So, you know, uh, because uh, if you issue half of the uh, share, if you issue a hundred percent of the shares, that is you dilute me by 50%, then an $8 stock is like a $16 stock. But a $16 stock is still pretty attractive on a business that was earning a dollar thirty to four forty four before, you know, it's still mm-hmm. very attractive. So I know shareholders don't like to be diluted by having a company issue as many shares as it already has outstanding, but that may be the right thing to do if you can't borrow at really high rates, at even really high rates. But uh, I would definitely want to see that. I would definitely want to see those things. And an example, like with Carnival, is I would especially want to see Carnival be more aggressive and have a better balance sheet and stuff than Norwegian and Royal Caribbean. I don't want to be invested in the company that's the weakest position. I want to be in the one that has the most cash on hand all the time. You want to be on the survivor because there should be, if a lot of companies go out of business and stuff, one, these stock prices are really low. So you can afford a huge amount of dilution and still do okay. And two, 
in industries where other people will be going out of business, hopefully, not in airlines and stuff, I think, but in a lot of industries, that will eliminate huge amounts of capacity, which makes the recovery so much better. That's what you want. I mean, say you're in home building or something. What you want is lots of home builders to go out of business. We own a car dealer. What we want is for our car dealer to survive and many of their competitors to go out of business. That would make for the best recovery five years down the road. Mm-hmm. So you want the one that's most aggressive in saying, we're going to have the best balance sheet of anyone in our industry. And that's the only one that I would want to bet on. So more than usual, I would really be focused on, I want the management team. I want a management team that's completely obsessed with survival and not worried about how much they're going to dilute me or how, that it's too much to borrow at these prices. So it's the f- survival of the fattest. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, well, that often is the case, but I am worried about even very big companies uh, having problems if they don't borrow now. Mm-hmm. Because now you can borrow. <laughs> and you don't want to assume that you can borrow like now, uh, a month from now or six months from now or something. There's no reason to assume that. It might get easier, but we have information about the economy, about the virus, things like that, which mean that you have much greater risks of not being able to access capital in the future, much greater than normal. So you want someone who's thinking, I don't want to have that problem. And to some extent, I think like what you're talking about with Munger and stuff falls into that category. I think that Buffett and Munger have an awareness of, we want to make sure we always have plenty of capital on hand so we never have to borrow um, when we need to. We would only be in a position where we you know, have the capital when it's cheap. The only reason why they ever borrow something is when it's incredibly cheap. And so I would definitely want to be focused on those who are taking those actions ahead of time. I mean, really, I want to be focused on those companies that the shareholders are revolting against them, saying that they're doing dumb things by borrowing at these high rates and by diluting them. You know, I want the ones that the message boards and stuff are saying are idiots because, <laughs> because then you know that the, the people think they're overreacting. And I would definitely want to have be in the companies that people say are overreacting. It doesn't work as well if your PE is 20 or 30 or something. So I'm not saying that. But I'm saying for these very cheap companies and these distressed stocks, the issue is, are you going to survive? And are you going to be in the strongest position when other companies around you are failing or that you can merge with and stuff later? So I just want the company that's going to have the best balance sheet and stuff because I already know I'm buying at you know these low rates. If you're buying at a single digit PE, the price is not so important. I could pay 50% more and be okay. You know, If you mm-hmm. pay at a 7 PE or a 10 something or 11 PE, that's not the end of the world as long as you know that your company is going to be the one that survives and is in the best position of anyone when everyone else needs money later. Mm -hmm. You know what I love about you, Jeff, is that consensus means nothing to you. (laughs) You read it on the message boards and you're like, no, it's funny because you've talked about before how some of the best investments you've made has come from you reading on message boards why the investor is not going to invest in the business and you just decided that that wasn't important and you just, you know, completely, you know, disregarded, I guess, his bear case to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, if these companies issue stock, they're going to really annoy people. I mean, for years sure. in the future, yeah. these they're going to be really disliked by shareholders and stuff. Although I should point out some of the companies that have issued stock, like an example, Carnival issued stock and convertible. Um, their biggest shareholder, uh, one of their biggest shareholders and found and basically the founder, um, was probably in some way behind some of those decisions, right? So yeah, he's doing uh, himself, right? Right. Cheesecake has a someone who's been there since you know the beginning. Again, basically the founder. founder. Yeah. yeah. So you know you should think about that. We we talked about uh, Landry's and stuff, barring at you know incredible rates. 
and, and also testing probably to see if they could borrow at those rates. Um, but I think those are all good signs because you don't want to be in the situation of a company that tried to preserve uh, the stock from dilution now and a few months down the road is having trouble accessing capital. You definitely, I want definitely for it to be a company that has the strongest pos- relative position in the industry. I actually think that's the most important. I think the most important thing is if you rank the companies in the industry, cruise lines, restaurants, whatever, um, it, who is the one that will fail last? If, if things get impossibly bad, who would be the very last one to fail? That's mm-hmm. the one that I'd be most interested in being invested in. Whereas the, uh, the uh, payoffs that are going to tempt people are in the most marginal ones, the ones that you can't tell, are they going to survive or not? Because if you bet on those, you'll do great as long as nothing happens in the future. As long as this is it, then betting on the cheapest company that's on the verge of bankruptcy right now is the best bet. But if any hiccup happens in the future, they're out of business. Whereas the one who's in the best position will hopefully be buying up the ones that are in a bad position and stuff later on. I mean, you referencing Cheesecake Factory, Landry's, um, you know, and uh, Carnival, how, you know, they're looking to raise debt, they're issuing stock, trying to do whatever they can to quote unquote, not stay frozen and build a cash pile. Did you read about Richard Branson? I mean, he's literally taking out a loan against his island, Necker Island. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, talk yeah. about skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. In the Virgin Islands. So no, it's definitely very interesting. Cool. Well, that's a, uh, this was a very good podcast. I think it's going to help out a lot of people, especially when it comes to look, I mean, there's a lot of businesses that could be cheap right now and it's good to filter through the noise and think about how do you stress test it? which companies are going to be around. And it sounds like the conclusion is you would be very focused on the management teams and their ability not to stay frozen and hopefully be able to take advantage of, you know, their competitors going out of business, which is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. If you are watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up Mondays our fun Mondays, Monday fun day is our question and answer day. So if you have any questions for Jeff, uh, leave them down below in the comment section and I will pull them and we will ask them on Monday. I will also tweet out a Q and a, uh, call for questions on Monday as well. So be on the lookout for that. If you'd rather ask through Twitter, uh, I really appreciate all the support from everybody. If you're watching or listening on the podcast side of things, uh, a rating review goes a very long way for us. I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in. Have a great weekend and we will see you on Monday.